Welcome to the Gasps from a Dying Art Form podcast, where I talk about the history and philosophy of tap dance and things that are tap dance adjacent. If you like the show, please become a supporter on Patreon. Half of all profits go to the Mad Rhythms Tap Academy at the Harold Washington Cultural Center in the historic Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago's South Side. Welcome to another episode of the GASPS series, Books from a Dying Art Form, where we take a look at books that are essential reading for the tap dancers' series about learning their tap history. Today's episode is brought to you in part by the Changing Times Tap Dance Initiative Grant by Jane Goldberg and the Changing Times Tap Dance Company and the Illinois Arts Council, and will tie into a larger work in the near future so keep an eye out for that coming up very soon. The book we are focusing on in this episode was published in 2002 and titled Five Points, the 19th century New York City neighborhood that invented tap dance, stole elections, and became the world's most notorious slum by Tyler Anbinder, a specialist in 19th century American politics and the history of immigration and ethnicity in American life and Professor Emeriti at Columbian College of Arts and Sciences in Washington, D.C. Other books by Ann Binder are 1992's Nativism and Slavery, where Ann Binder analyzed the role of the anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic Know-Nothing Party and the political crisis that led to the Civil War, and the forthcoming Plentiful Country, The Great Potato Famine and the Making of Irish New York, to be published in March of 2024. Ann Binder's Five Points is often cited in recent histories to describe the birthplace of modern tap dance, as in Tap Works by Beverly Fletcher, which was the focus of Gasp's episode number nine, titled Colorblind Tap Dance. In Tap Works, Fletcher, with only Ann Binder's book listed as a source for the section, relates the popular Irish-African-American amalgamation origin story of Tap, writing that, quote, the potato famine in Ireland caused thousands of Irish families to flee their country as they watched whole villages succumb to starvation. Upon entering the United States, they settled throughout the country, with a large number of them remaining in New York City, their port of entry. Many took up residence in a rather ancient and somewhat decrepit structure known as the Old Tenement House, or the Old Brewery, in the infamous Five Points neighborhood. Here, owing to their lack of finances and for recreational purposes, they would find empty space within the building and fill their evenings with their own jigs, reels, and songs. Also residing in this building were an almost equal number of black families, who enjoyed the same pastime and, unfortunately, the same poverty. Eventually, the two groups met, and from then on, spent evening after evening watching the other perform dances of their origin, a scene fairly reminiscent of those days 
In the mid-Atlantic, in which the slaves and the crew indulged in the same pastime. This time, however, it was voluntary. How lucky we are, for all those evening dance sessions would produce the tap sounds and steps that today we call tap dancing. Upon viewing the footwork of the Irish, the blacks learned the material quickly and changed it to a more syncopated beat. Likewise, the Irish, with their sense of humor and flair for the spectacular, began to incorporate their bodies and arms into their own dancing. The stage would soon see the blacks performing the Irish jig and the Irish performing the Black Virginia Essence. Out of both of these would come the buck and wing, end quote. Regarding minstrel shows, Fletcher writes that, quote, some people pointed to the fact that the 19th century saw a falling apart of the social molds and principles that had existed, giving way to an emergence of the individual and his right to free expression and thinking, end quote. According to Fletcher and other authors, it was the amicable and amiable dance parties held between poor Irish and African-American people in five points, uh, among other places like, you know, Philadelphia, Baltimore, uh, pretty much that whole East Coast along the Mississippi River. I mean, down the railroads, you get the idea. Uh, but that those uh, moments of interaction were the catalyst for modern tap dance. But is that what Ann Binder writes? Listen on for the answers. Before we get to the tap dance part, let's learn a little bit about the Five Points neighborhood in New York City, which resided at the five-cornered intersection of Anthony, Orange, and Cross Streets, what is known as Chinatown today. Five Points was home to a wealth of different ethnicities, African-American, Irish, German, Italian, Polish, Chinese, Scottish, English, and Eastern European Jewish people. Due to the intensely impoverished nature of the residents, Five Points became known as the USA's most notorious slum. Ann Binder describes the love-hate relationship that the public perception had of Five Points, writing that, quote, Few historians devoted much attention to Five Points in the early years of the 20th century. Academic historians concerned themselves primarily with politics and the law, Slums, immigrants, crime, none of these subjects seemed important enough to merit scholarly analysis, end quote. But there was some interest, as Ann Binder writes, quote, While Americans may have considered five points repulsive, they found it fascinating as well. Tap dancing originated in its raucous dance halls. The neighborhood was a playground for bowery boys and sporting gentlemen two of 19th century America's most colorful cultures. Its residents squared off in some of the most talked-about bare-knuckle prize fights of the century. Many of the city's most renowned gangs were headquartered there. It was also the epicenter of rough-and-tumble Tammany politics and some of the most infamous riots in the early American history. End quote. Tammany politics refers to Tammany Hall, the executive committee of the Democrat Party in New York City, that historically exercised political control through the typical bossist blend of charity and patronage, end quote. Of course, this wasn't the Democratic Party we know today, but was then the party of slavery and states' rights. 
and elections at Tammany Hall consisted of lying, cheating, and violence. Not like today's elect. Well, uh, <clears throat> well, you know, uh, uh, never mind. The gangs of Five Points are perhaps best known from their romantic portrayal in the 2002 film Gangs of New York, directed by Martin Scorsese and featuring Daniel Day-Lewis acting his butt off while wearing a large stovepipe hat, as was the style of the Bowery Bahoys. That's spelled B apostrophe H-O-Y-S. You know, also so you know they're, they're Irish. Not all of them are Irish, but the Bahoys. Mostly Irish. Mostly firemen. Well, anyways, in the 18th century, the area that would become Five Points was a nice place. Until companies started using the space as a dumping ground for garbage and pollutants. And by the beginning of the 19th century, was literally and figuratively a dump. That didn't stop landowners and investors from developing two-and-a-half-story wooden apartments, dubbed tenements, later made out of brick. These buildings were cramped and often windowless, which meant that there was little or no light to guide people as they traversed up and down the narrow staircases. As these buildings grew more and more decrepit, residents were lucky if all the stairs were intact, with any misstep in the inky darkness possibly meaning a fatal plunge to the ground below. The people that lived there were mostly artisans, shoemakers, tailors, bakers, carpenters, and masons, with some merchants, shopkeepers, and professionals also scattered about the area. In the winter, these tenements would become akin to residential ice boxes. In the summer, especially the later brick tenements, they were like ovens. In both cases, people died due to exposure to extreme temperatures. As immigration in the 1820s and 1830s drastically increased, housing costs skyrocketed, and landlords, to make the most money, compartmentalized these already small apartments into even smaller apartments, with numerous people living in one tiny space, no tables, no chairs, sleeping on beds of filthy rags. Vice ran rampant, with alcohol and prostitution being popular pastimes, but... There was also merrymaking, as written about by THE Davy Crockett, but uh, really his ghostwriter, Pennsylvania Congressman William Clark. Crockett and Clark described what they saw, saying that, quote, It appeared as if the cellars were jammed full of people, and such fiddling and dancing nobody ever saw before in this world. Black and white, white and black, all hug em smug together. Happy as lords and ladies sitting sometimes round in a ring with a jug of liquor between them, end quote. Crockett and Clark continue, noting that, quote, These are worse than savages. They are too mean to swab Hell's Kitchen, end quote. Although this was certainly bad press, that people were so interested at the time is an ostensible compliment. In 1855, the vast majority, around... 50% were Irish immigrants, and they were not treated kindly. Eleven years earlier, there was a riot that saw the beatings and deaths of many Irish at the hands of native-born citizens, who were, in many cases, first- and second-generation children of immigrants themselves. But they called themselves Native Americans. <laughs> oh, boy! In April 9, 
1834 issue of the Evening Post read, quote, Keep those damned Irishmen in order, end quote, which meant fights at polling places during elections. The black population around the same time made up only 4% of the ward's residents, although there is some suspicion if this is an underrepresentation due to census takers just, well, not caring about black people. <laughs> That's not funny. I shouldn't laugh. Although there was a degree of racial mixing, housing was generally segregated with different ethnicities, many of whom only spoke their native languages, opting to live ethnically homogeneously. Black people were segregated to the Cow Bay area, considered to be the worst borough of an already decrepit neighborhood. Living conditions were so bad that some anti-abolitionists used it as an argument for slavery, calling northern abolitionists hypocrites, which they kind of were, for boasting of freedom for black people while partitioning them off in what were ostensibly worse living conditions than those enjoyed by the enslaved. Well, that didn't stop wealthier people from visiting Five Points in an act now called slumming and were drawn to the dens of gambling and hooch, of women and men of loose morals, and for music and dancing. For a time, Five Points was a popular destination to visit, uh, but only briefly, with people returning quickly to their more upscale neighborhoods. Politics was a major factor in Five Points, with its dense population of new citizens' right to vote being courted and swayed by Republicans, Whigs, Know-Nothings, and Democrats. That is, after they learned that they couldn't kick them out. Well, you know the old saying, if you can't beat them, you pay them lip service until they join you. Uh, so the saying goes. And eventually, some Irishmen were given political positions, like Mike Walsh and Matthew Brennan. More like mob bosses than politicians, really. Concurrently, the Republicans, the party of Lincoln at the time, were busy courting black voters, and the wealth of Irish, often bustling for a good row, were used as political pawns to discourage black people from voting by Democrats. Such as an article written by a reporter in The Herald describing, quote-unquote, a Negro hunt. The reporter writes that, quote, a colored voter in the forenoon having made his appearance at one of the polls, some of the Bahoys took it into their heads to give him a licking. He took to his heels in beautiful style and never was there a rarer hunt. End quote. I mean, this is the origin of the animosity between Irish and African Americans. In antebellum United States, the pro-slavery Democrats courted the Irish vote promising them privileges in exchange for said votes that labor historian David Rodiger describes as, quote-unquote, the wages of whiteness. Seriously, the Irish were not considered white before the Civil War, and in hand-drawn advertisements were depicted in the exact same way as black people, ape-like, knuckle-dragging Cro-Magnons. The Republicans, pushing for an end to slavery, did so in part to gain the black vote, as there were 4.4 million black people, citizens and enslaved, out of the U.S.'s over 23 million total population. So that's roughly 2%, 10% less than the current black population in 2023. Now 2%, that doesn't sound like much, but with northern black people living in large numbers in urban areas, 
a large number of black votes could easily change the tide of an election in some districts. In fact, the Book 5 points, which is often cited as evidence of black and white camaraderie, begins its first chapter with an account of an anti-abolitionist race riot, the worst that New York had seen up to that point. On June 12, 1834, silk importer Louis Tappan noticed Samuel E. Cornish, a black reverend, standing outside the Late Street Presbyterian Church in Five Points in hopes that he might worship there that Sunday morning. Tappan invited Cornish inside the church, and the minister of the church, Samuel H. Cox, gave a sermon about how Jesus and his disciples, being from the Middle East, would have been considered colored. You can probably figure out that this did not go over very well with white residents and the local press, who jumped on the story of the event with inflammatory newspaper articles and attacks on black people and the places where they lived and worked, with white residents being told to leave a light on in their window so that the mob knew to leave their residencies unmolested. And that's not the only race riot in Five Points. In the spring of 1863, the Civil War was in full swing, and a draft was implemented, which the new Irish citizens did not take too kindly to. As Anbinder writes, quote, Now five-pointers who disdained the war might be dragged into it against their will. New York's Irish Americans were especially angry when the Lincoln administration announced that some non-citizens, those who had declared their intention to become citizens, or had voted in an American election, would be eligible for the draft, end quote. The result was that, quote, the predominantly Irish American mobs lynched a dozen or more African Americans and terrorized thousands. Hundreds of fires were set. Rioters fought pitched battles with the police and the militia for control of uptown avenues. The homes and businesses of prominent Republicans were looted and ransacked. Symbols of federal power in the city also drew the wrath of the enraged populace in what the Irish American, a newspaper, called, quote, a Saturnalia of pillage and violence, end quote, end quote. The reason many Irish people were against the Civil War and the abolition of slavery is because publishers in the Democrat-run press led with the line that more rights for black people meant less rights for them. Quote, Irish Americans frequently justified their opposition to abolitionism on the grounds that it would hurt the movement to liberate Ireland, writes Anbinder. Besides, argued many Irish Americans, the Irish were as much slaves to the English as African Americans were to their masters in the South. Abolitionists ought to focus their attention on the six million white slaves in Ireland, insisted the Irish American, before interceding on behalf of the three million black slaves in the United States, end quote. In 1857, the Irish American newspaper asked why, quote, the citizens of New England who spend their money, their time, their talents, in endeavoring to make the Negro free, are so opposed to the foreigner, end quote. There were labor disputes between Irish and black people, too, as poor Irish workers, after being treated as subhuman by their employers, went on strike for better working conditions, 
Meanwhile, black people had a hard time getting employment anywhere due to racism, and sometimes the only jobs they could get were as scabs at these businesses while the Irish refused to work. On one hand, this made it difficult for the Irish workers to, you know, make progress in the business, to make money for things like food and rent, which grew a deep enmity towards black people and Irish workers. On the other hand, black people also had to eat and pay rent and were put in this untenable position with few options available to them. The real villain is the capitalist employers, but that didn't stop many Irish and other poor white people from blaming black people for their lack of work and low wages. When the draft was announced in 1863, it was the straw that broke the camel's back for many Irish Americans. Quote, The draft riding in five points resulted in the almost complete abandonment of the district by New York African Americans, writes Ann Binder. The neighborhood's black population, once numbering over 1,000, had declined dramatically and steadily ever since the race riot there nearly 30 years earlier, so that by the eve of the Civil War, fewer than 500 African Americans were left, even though the ward's overall population had doubled. All but a handful of these now decided to leave, under a headline proclaiming the exodus of blacks from the Five Points, the Herald reported on Thursday, the 17th, that, quote, the fear which had seized the colored population in nearly every part of the city has extended to the blacks of the Sixth Ward, end quote. Three days of violence aimed against them convinced five pointers of color that their only safety is in flight, end quote. The 1870 census records only 132 black residents, with most of those who left never to return. If you followed race politics at all at any point since mid-19th century, then you will realize that the same arguments are still in use today. The Irish were slaves too is still a popular rebuttal when talking about things like reparations for black people or affirmative action, or welfare programs, or anything that attempts to heal the wounds caused by racism and black enslavement. And then Jim Crow, and now colorblind era of race politics. What's sad is that it's not the Irish's fault, or black people's fault, with the burden of fault resting on the conniving, rapacious, and power-hungry politicians who used both groups as political pawns and still do. What appears to them is we're replacing national-born American, native-born Americans per to permanently transform the political landscape. Is it really they want to remake the demographics of America to ensure they're, that they stay in power forever? They can't win re-election in 2022 unless they bring in a large number of new voters to replace the voters that are already here. That's what this is about. We have an invasion in this country. Democrats who want to replace you, the American voters, with newly amnestied citizens. Congress is not going to act because one party has a vested interest in 
changing the population. If you use the term as an invasion, that's not anti-Hispanic, it's a fact. I have less political power because they're importing a brand new electorate. Why should I sit back and take that? I think this will be the last election that the Republicans have a chance of winning because you're going to have people flowing across the borders. You're going to have illegal immigrants coming in and they're going to be legalized and they're going to be able to vote. And once that all happens, you can forget it. It's the exact same arguments, which we know by reading books like Five Points are fallacious, untrue, and lead to anger, racism, bigotry, and violence. I say this all the time, but guys, you gotta read the history books. You you gotta do it. It's obvious to see and hear, especially when quotes from modern sources of news repeat near verbatim the racist talking points of newspapers from the 19th century. The onus of fault for why this is allowed to happen falls squarely on our shoulders, people like you and me, and especially tap dancers who repeat this cramp role. If every tap dancer had read the Five Points book, then the lies and deception would be obvious. But that we have people, some of them tap dancers, repeating these talking points is an ignorance most shameful. It was a flap load of nonsense then, propagated by power-seeking aristocrats, and it's a flap load of nonsense now, still propagated by power-seeking aristocrats. It wouldn't be a gasp episode without a social justice rant and a plea to read a book, so read a book. Hey, where's the tap dancing in all of this, man? You may be wondering. It says in the title, The Neighborhood That Invented Tap Dance. So what gives, brah? That's the funny part about this book in that tap dance, despite having the name in the title, mentions (laughs) mentions very little about it. Each chapter in five points begins with a short account of a of a story of an individual. From Tappan and the riots in the beginning to serial murderer Lee Ah Bao, a.k.a. Quimbo Apo. In a four-page prologue to Chapter 6, titled This Phenomenon, Juba, Anne Binder pulls together accounts from other well-known sources about William Henry Lane, a.k.a. Master Juba, from the famous article by Miriam Hannah Winter and Charles Dickens' American Notes, and a few other less-known sources. If you've read Dickens and Winter's work, there is nothing new here, and it is kind of a letdown. There is mention of how Juba appropriated steps from Irish dancers to create his amalgam style, but no mention of what the Irish dancers took from Juba, unlike what was written in Tapworks, which begs the question how Fletcher knew that, if her only source was this book. There's more books in the back of Tapwork, so I don't know. I haven't read through them all, uh, but I would like to try. Also, unlike Tapworks, Anne Binder at least gets the date of Lane's death correct. 18, we think 1852, but definitely not 1872. What Anne Binder's book does include are some nice descriptions of a place where Lane danced, at Pete Williams' place, also known as Almack's the scene of Dickens' classic description. If you visit what used to be 67 Orange Street, just south of Bayard, as I recently did, it's a park, 
So no dice trying to find any historical architecture or knickknacks still hanging around. So I was only able to make it there in the nighttime. So I don't know. Go hunt for knickknacks in the park. Quote, Pete Williams' basement differed little in appearance from other neighborhood dance halls, writes Ann Binder, despite its scandalous reputation. Really, it looked very clean and cheerful. It was a spacious room with a low ceiling, excessively whitewashed, nicely sanded, and well-lit. And the black proprietor and his ministering spirits, literally fulfilling their vocation behind a very tidy bar, were well-dressed and well-mannered people. But it was the mixing of blacks and whites on the dance floor that shocked well-to-do visitors. Quote, Several very handsome mulatto women were in the crowd, noted by an observer in the 1840s, and a few young men about town mixed up with the blacks, and altogether it was a picture of amalgamation, such as I had never seen before, end quote. That's Ann Binder quoting someone else. The New York Clipper agreed that at Pete Williams' place, quoting the New York Clipper, amalgamation reigned predominant, if we may judge from appearances, end quote. Outsiders viewed the mixing of races, especially in the close, sweaty, and sexually charged context of the dance hall, as one of the most scandalous features of such Five Points establishments. End quote. Among all the race rioting, there was indeed evenings of people of all colors and creeds mixing it up on the dance floor, a part of tap dance and jazz dance history that makes this art form so special. Ann Binder includes a paragraph that is partially about blackface minstrelsy performed at the local Chatham and Bowery theaters, and with those three sentences on blackface and the five pages on Juba, all reference to anything involved with tap dance is done. This is also how I know a lot of tap dancers haven't read this book because I think there would have been a collective sigh of disappointment at how little tap dance is mentioned, despite having the name tap dance in the subtitle. The book ends by bringing us up to current date, with the Irish moving out, replaced by Italian immigrants, and later Chinese immigrants, giving it the name Chinatown, which is, as it remains to the present day, to get a feeling for what life was like for people living in Five Points, you can't do much better than Tyler Ann Binder's book, and I highly suggest that you pick it up and give it a read, despite the lack of reference to tap dance. If anything, it will make you appreciate what you got, like stairs with no missing steps and enough light to see where you are stepping. After reading about 16 people sleeping in a decrepit, foul-smelling, burning hot or freezing cold room the size of Beyonce's least favorite closet, living with your gross roommates really doesn't sound so bad. So is Fletcher and Tapworks correct that, quote, some pointed to the fact that the 19th century saw a falling apart of the social molds and principles that had existed, giving way to an emergence of the individual and his right to free expression and thinking? Yes, as we've heard in the description of Pete Williams' place in the account of William Henry Lane in Ann Binder's Five Points. What's missing from Fletcher's and other writing, 
who cite Ann Binder, is the book-ended race riots and persistent discrimination against black people. In other words, yes, there was a falling apart of social molds and principles in Five Points, but only for about 30 years before brand new invidious social molds and principles were set in place by politicians seeking to exploit both poor white and poor black people. As I've covered in other GASPs episodes, the majority of antebellum blackface minstrel performers, whose performances not only helped develop tap dance but created harmful stereotypes that persist to this day, these performers were Irish. But how and why did they do that? Anne Binder's Five Points gives us clues towards that answer. Poor Irish dancers, mainly men, were taking trips down south to observe black dance. They le- in the north, they learned it at places like Pete Williams' place. And that's in part how they gained the chops to be recognizable as a decent impersonator of black dance, speech, and mannerisms. The why in why did they have to be such dicks about it, besides the fact that comically imitating someone's race is inherently dickish, is in part because they were manipulated by avaricious politicians and newspapers to view black people as the other, as competition for scarce but not really resources, and as people seeking to replace them as citizens. While the commingling of people is an important and beautiful part of tap and jazz dance history, I believe that it is the darker side that also has relevance in how the art form became what it is today. And that leaving out those parts, or worse, in my opinion, romanticizing them, does a great disservice to our understanding about the evolution of the dance. If the commingling had not been scandalous, then more people would have been doing it. Thus, the art form would have evolved in a different way. If blackface is a form of racial oppression, and that hadn't existed, tap dance would have been even more different. Do I wish life hadn't happened that way? Yes, of course. Do I love how tap dance turned out? Yes, of course. It's this absurdity that rests closest to objective truth that makes tap dance the nuanced institution that it is today. To deny all parts of the history and to romanticize the bad parts is to do a disservice to tap dancers of yesterday. Whether happy or sad, pleasant or downright horrific, tap dancing and the history and philosophy behind it has the power to move us towards every point on the spectrum of emotion, including incredible uncomfortableness, which, at the end of the day, is what it's like to be human. But that's just a gasp from a dying art form. As I mentioned, this is the first episode leading up to a larger project supported by grants from the Changing Times Tap Dance Initiative and a grant from the Illinois Arts Council. So stay on the lookout for more on that. It's going to be super cool. And there's actually some tap dancing involved, like real tap dancing and videos and stuff. Uh, Besides Jane Goldberg and the Illinois government, thank you to the GASPs Patreon sponsors Lori Williams and Junior Lanian. Two people who value this type of work that delves into the historical and philosophical research of the history of our beloved art form. Love you guys, and I appreciate you. 
I also see a picture of them on the Patreon, and I can say objectively, this is not just opinion, this is objective, that they are some of the best-looking Patreon supporters on the platform. Again, uh, not my opinion, but objective fact, you guys. So, you know, settle down. And maybe consider becoming a beautiful Gasps Patreon supporter yourself. Also, check out the Gasps from a Dying Art Form Facebook page to participate in the Gasps community. And now it's time for the Tap Dance Podcast Roundup! Yee-hoo! Twirl my lasso and throw it away! Shoot, I made that out of my shoelaces. What am I gonna... Never mind, I'll figure it out. On episode number 22 of the Tap Love Tour podcast, host and tap dance podfather, Travis Knights interviews the founder and choreographer of Tap Dogs, Dean Perry. Perry talks about his transition from working in the steel industry to becoming a choreographer, starting with his hit show, Hot Shoe Shuffle, and leading into the creation of Tap Dogs. If you are a producer of work yourself, Perry's stories of navigating schedules and convincing other dancers to give up uh, other contracts to work with him should prove a familiar story. Get the inside scoop on the first days of Tap Dogs, Perry's respect for Savion Glover and Gregory Hines, and how he keeps a show that's been running for nearly 30 years stay fresh. One thing I found interesting is that their costumes were and always have been the clothes they initially rehearsed in which implies that tiny, cut-off jean shorts were considered acceptable rehearsal wear back then. I better not hear any guff the next time I show up to a rehearsal wearing my tiny shorts. I I like the feel of the air on my legs, so too bad. Check out this episode of the Tap Love Tour to hear some rock star stories from the creator of one of the most popular dance shows in world history. On a bonus episode of the Lost in the Shuffle podcast from August 5th, 2019, host Hilary Marie shares injury stories from her own life and those shared with her by members of the ITAP online community. Plantar fasciitis. Fasciitis, there's two eyes. Why would they put them there if I wasn't supposed to say them? Plantar injuries. IT band bleeding, shin kicking, calf muscle bursting, knee dislocating, toe brokening. Well, ouch is, is how you describe all that. If you've ever had a dance injury, this episode is a cathartic experience, like veterans sharing war stories. Hillary gives the best advice. Take care of yourself, yo. So follow her advice with some audible therapy by listening to this episode of the Lost in the Shuffle podcast and check out the educational tap dance platform itaponline.com. On episode number 30 of the Have Tap Shoes Will Travel podcast, host Rick Oslin tests out some new equipment, touches base with old friends, and gives us an update on an experimental choreography lab he is participating in called Natchmo. 
This episode of Half Tap Shoes is a two-parter, with the second half being 20 minutes of experimental tap music, smooth chords, looped percussion, and plenty of tap dance. You'll be dancing to these crunchy tunes yourself while listening to this episode of Have Tap Shoes Will Travel, so check it out. In episode 10 of Shuffle Live Productions, the Real Talk Tap Talks vlogcast. Is the vlog vlog? Vlog? Video podcast? That's on YouTube. Host Nico Rubio interviews George... Gmo Patterson, the Tin Man himself, in an episode titled The Realist. Patterson talks about growing up in Chicago as part of the famous Jesse White Tumblers and goes on to talk about his time in New York. First as a student of the Bring in the Noise intensive Funk You and later performing on Broadway in the show. Performances prefaced by hours-long sessions at the now-defunct Faisal's Dance Studio in Times Square. Rubio combs through Patterson's influential presence in the lives of numerous tap dancers and gets us up to date on Patterson's love of teaching near his current residence, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. If you live in or near Milwaukee, take the opportunity to grab a class with Patterson. It worked for people like Rubio, and it can work for you. So check them out. On the February 6th, 2022 episode of the Stop Time Podcast, host Lisa Hopkins interviews tap dancer and choreographer Brenda Buffalino, which is always a good time. We get a, we get a peek into Buffalino's day-to-day affairs living in New Pulse in the state of New York among the Shawangunk Mountains. Daily exercises in Tai Chi, meditation, painting, calligraphy, and to work on Two new books. Don't tease me like that, Brenda. The second half of the interview is special, and Buffalino goes full-on tap dance philosopher, giving advice to other dancers, including her younger self, spouting what only can be called wisdom after a life in the arts. If you don't listen to this episode of the Stop Time Podcast, well, isn't that a choice? Isn't Okay, that's all for the podcast roundup. Thanks a lot, folks. We'll see you later. Uh, Bye-bye.
Okay, I, I think we lost the squares who don't know to listen to the end of a track if the runtime exceeds the end of the episode. Some people call them super squares and nincompoops. Not me, but some people. And if you've not listened to the bonus track before but are listening now, well, then you're no longer a super square and nincompoop. So it no longer applies to you. So, you know, send all angry letters to brillbaird at magrhythms.com. Uh, I bet some of you may be confused as to why the Democrats are the bad guys in this episode. And the reason is due to what a lot of people call the party switch. The party switch is the idea that Democrats used to be politically conservative and Republicans were more progressive. And that at some point switched core ideologies. There are a number of factors that explain this. Businesses in the 19th century wanted big government to help them expand, and Republicans at the time were about big government and businesses, with Democrats wanting small government. But now, major companies are huge and want small government. So the Republican Party, still for, you know, these these businesses, uh, now wants small government to match their industrious supporters. The farming for votes is also a factor, as we talked about at at length in this episode. And the Democrats lost a lot following the Civil War. During the 1930s, uh, when the Great Depression's going on, Democrat Franklin Delano Roosevelt garnered a lot of favoritism from poor people of every color due to his New Deal, which included regulation of financial institutions, the founding of welfare and pension programs, infrastructure development, and more. It was these measures that ensured Roosevelt won in a landslide against Republican Alf Landon, who opposed these exercises of federal power. Again, during the civil rights movement, Democrats sought to entice black voters and progressive white voters by paying some lip service to radical policies of equality, a tactic still used to this day, despite not much changing regarding the upkeep of primarily non-white neighborhoods in Democrat-run cities, Republican-runs too, nor in Republican-run rural communities. There's Democrat versions of that too. So, you know, racism isn't really, uh, you know, party-specific. <laughs> Let's just make that clear. And it could switch again. My prediction, if either party started to lose too many times in a row, they will start to court people of opposite ideologies because power often defeats integrity. And they will absolutely succeed if people don't read just a few history books on the matter. Please, I beg you, read, read a book. It's only due to our own ignorance that modern Republicans call Democrats the party of slavery, which, no, they are not. And Democrats lob the same accusation at the Republicans, which, no, they are also not the party of slavery. Although they do repeat the same talking points as those politicians who were in the party of slavery. So, uh, maybe stop doing that, you guys, you know? I mean, this is why it's up to tap and jazz dancers, really anyone who studies an art form primarily and in large part created by black people and significant input from oppressed people of all colors, to study the history and create work that addresses what is true, which is what I am up to with my upcoming project that incorporates 
actual tap dance with this podcast. Tap dancers especially complain that there isn't enough written about our history, but then fail to read the few books that are available. Any tap dancer who is on the fence about the anti-Semitic, in-origin, great replacement theory, or the anti-black, the Irish were slaves too, but these narratives simply needs to crack open a good history book to learn how ridiculous these things are. The U.S. is called a melting pot for a reason, so don't fall for this divisive rhetoric, this uh, load of BS chorus, this shuffle off to buffalo poop, this pile of flap, this uh, rolling para-duty. Okay, that's enough. That's enough. No more. No more. I'll see you all later. Take care of yourself, and bye-bye.